and welcome to another episode of Authorised, where writers speak and two terrific writers to bring you today, two award-winning journalists and authors who've done a couple of books that I'm sure you're going to absolutely love and you're going to love uh, hearing them talk about them to them in just a few moments. Uh, of course, the great partners we have uh, on this podcast, Authorised, are CSCG. Now, if you uh, have any accounting or business uh, problems, they're the people to talk to when it comes to finance, whether your needs are uh, complex needs or whether you have very simple uh, needs in the finance world, they can help you out. They're experienced accountants. Uh, they're people who uh, tick all the boxes in all the different areas of the uh, the finance world as well. They'll tell you all about it or you can see for yourself by jumping on their website, cscg.com.au or give them a call. Very simple. Pick that phone up and uh, simply call this number, 03 8333. They're always available to have a chat about your accounting and your taxation situation, CSCG. Our two authors today are Rippers. Uh, Conrad Marshall will join us a little later on to talk about the third book for him in the trilogy of books about uh, the Richmond Premiership. So we've got uh, a Mad Tigers fan and a Crazy Dog Lady. Uh, that's uh, what makes up this particular podcast. So they're a little bit different, but uh, certainly two great writers. Conrad will talk to us about his new book, The Hard Way, about uh, the uh, third Richmond Premiership in, uh, what, four years? Uh, they've done terrifically well, and he's a mad keen Tigers man. Laura Greaves is going to join us first up, though, to talk about uh, her latest book, which is called Extraordinary Old Dogs. This is a beautiful book. This is a lovely book. This is one of those great reads. It'll it'll uh, have you a tear in your eye at one stage and it'll have you beaming with a smile on your face. Dogs are wonderful creatures. I love them. So does Laura. And, in fact, Laura's got uh, a few of them, as she tells us when, as we talk to her about her brand-new book, Extraordinary Old Dogs. Let's find out about uh, the one she's got. So I've got three dogs. Two of them are seniors. Tex is 13 and Delilah is 10. And then I've got Coco, who's a Kelpie cross, and we think she's about six, but we're not entirely sure because she was a stray. But yeah, Tex, you know, he finally cracked teenagerhood. And honestly, I wasn't entirely convinced he'd ever make it there because he has a very long list of medical problems that he's had actually since he was a much younger dog. And they've just kind of compounded and exacerbated and multiplied as he's gotten older. And yeah, you know, the, the more medication I have to pump into him every day and, and the more his vet bills tally up, it just occurred to me that so many people just would not bother with a dog like yeah. Tex. You know, they would they would just think of him as a terrible burden rather than the absolute treasure that he is. And as soon as I thought that, I realized that my next book had to be about showing people not just how worthy and wonderful old dogs are, but what they are actually still capable of in their senior years because there's so many of them out there doing such incredible things. One thing I want to attack first up is, though, the the myth about dog years. One equals seven. Now, you've kind of done a little um, almost like a, a – what do they call them these days? Um, I don't know. It's like it's a breakdown of sorts. Some dogs it is seven, but other dogs it's sort of five and other dogs it might be four and others it might be even more. Yeah, that's true. So I don't actually know how the myth started or, you know, where it came from, but it's something that, you know, vets have been trying to correct for a long time. It's often the case that the first year of a dog's life is roughly equivalent to about seven years of a human life in terms of where the dog will get to in its physical maturity. But beyond that first year, all dogs age differently. So the one year equals seven years thing is a total mix. The bigger the dog, the more rapidly they age. So for giant breeds, for example, like Great Danes and Wolfhounds, if they crack 10 years, they're doing incredibly well. You know, those those dogs 
often don't see double digits. Yeah. Um, but then you've got little dogs like chihuahuas and poodles that, that live, you know, often into their 20s and beyond. So, yeah, it really depends on things like age, breed, general overall health, that sort of stuff. Now, you're a self-described crazy dog lady. Are you a – Are you a big a, – does it then kind of branch down into big dogs and little dogs? Is there that kind of differentiation as well, the same as like cats and dogs? You go into dogs and um, then you go, I'm a big dog person, I'm a little dog person. <laughs> Not for me personally. Um, I mean, growing up, my family always had West Highland White Terriers who, are, you know, are little dogs and yep. absolutely adorable. And I think probably having had, you know, four of those throughout my childhood and, and into my early 20s, I probably was more drawn to larger dogs then. Um, I think I wanted something a bit more robust. And also I'm a runner and I wanted a dog that I could run with. Yeah. So we got Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers, which are actually the smallest of the retriever breeds. So, which is um, what Tex is. is yeah, Tex and Delilah are yeah. both tollers. I would love to have tollers my whole life, but I suppose the problem, if you want to call it that, with doing the kind of work that I do is that I get to meet so many amazing dogs of all breeds that I'm just forever adding to my list of dogs that I, I mean, my husband is forever laughing at me because every time I see a new dog, I'm like, oh, I want one of those. He's like, oh, what's that, 30 on the list now? (laughs) (laughs) The kid in the lolly shop syndrome. I just want all the dogs, basically. Yeah. Uh, Talking of working dogs, Maggie the Kelpie uh, in the the book is uh, an amazing story. I mean, uh, just about made 30 or did make 30 or no one's quite sure because there's no papers to back it up, but what an amazing story. Um, Yeah, so Maggie um, was a cattle dog, um, not just in the breed sense, but in the actual employment sense. Um, She lived down on a dairy farm in uh, regional Victoria with the McLaren family. And she was an absolute gun at working with the cattle. I mean, you know, she absolutely hated being beaten by the motorbike that Brian, the farmer, would would ride. So she made it her mission in life to always be faster and more efficient than the bike. Yeah, and they believe she was 30 when when she passed away a couple of years ago. And the reason they think that is that when Maggie joined the family, the youngest child wasn't yet at school. So he couldn't have been more than four or five. And he was 34 when she died. So they're pretty convinced of it. But, yeah, they can't stack it up because Maggie's papers were lost in a house move. But they're not fussed about that. You know, it doesn't matter to them whether she holds an official record or yeah. not. I mean, they got to spend three decades with her and they know how incredible she was and, and that's the main thing. And and Maggie had uh, something of a an unusual uh, sort of culinary uh, twist that might have been uh, some key to her longevity. Yes, well, Brian, um, Maggie's owner, is convinced that although, of course, things like, you know, having a very active life and the fresh country air and and all of that stuff um, undoubtedly contributed to Maggie's long life, he thinks the secret was cow placenta. (laughs) Because every time the cows would calve in the paddocks, Maggie would run out there and just feast on the afterbirth. And he just thinks that all the nutrition and the, the, you know, the vitamins in that contributed to her wonderfully long life. Yeah, yeah, quite amazing. Lovely, inspiring stories to live. They're sad too, unfortunately, because the, they don't have a happy ending because uh, as, as life uh, shows us, death is a, a part of life and, and it's part of uh, the, the experience with these dogs, but it, it's a lovely kind of uh, feeling that you get out of reading these stories. I hope so. I mean, it's true some of the stories are bittersweet because the dogs had passed away, you know, in the, in the time that I um, was writing about them and some of them, a couple of them have passed away since. But I think, you know, well, I hope that people 
still find the stories uplifting because even in the cases of the dogs that had passed away, their owners were just so grateful mm. to have had them in every single case of the, you know, the dogs featured in this book. The owners knew it while they had the dogs and they, you know, treated the dogs accordingly. And I just don't think, you know, a dog could ask for more than that, really. Yeah. Oh, there's much more to smile about in this book than there is to, to kind of uh, get upset about. I, I love yeah. uh, I love uh, Rachel, who, who names every one of her puppies is named after a Beatles album. I just I adore that. Yes, that's right. And she also has some um, martial arts yeah. references in her naming practices as well. So, yeah, yeah they all have creative names. The, the bond between people and dogs, it, the, the, the one thing that I, I took out of this as well is that you're convinced that dogs choose you. We've always said that cats choose you, but uh, you're convinced that dogs do as well? I 100% believe that. And, you know, two of my three dogs I selected from a breeder, I believe that I was in control of those decisions. But when <laughs> I actually look at what my dogs have done for me and what they've brought to my life, um, I know that any other dog wouldn't have done those things. I mean, I know any other dog would have also been wonderful and would have, you know, changed my life in different positive ways, but I wouldn't have got these specific things that I've gained from owning the dogs that I own. So, yes, I do believe that, you know, they, they picked me or they were picked for me perhaps by, by the universe or by some sort of magical element. And certainly in the case of Coco, um, the Kelpie, she did pick me. I mean, I... Was, wasn't supposed to be at the location I was when I found her. And if I'd been a second earlier or a second later, I never would have seen her. So I absolutely believe that fate conspired to um, to bring me and Coco together. Yeah, I just, well, you know, I really do think dogs are magical beings. Yeah, I <laughs> oh, no, I agree with you. And some of the magic of the dogs in, in the book, I mean, Chase of the Talking Dog, um, Chili the dog that uh, that we all uh, knew and loved uh, on television uh, watching uh, mm. as Frankie J. Holden's dog in a, in a place to call home and the con- conservation dogs. I mean, uh, the Magnus the dog with the bucket list is, is a lovely story. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, obviously I love all the stories in the book and and all the other books I've written too, but for me, the ones that really kind of tug at my heartstrings or or resonate with me are the ones that do have that element of kind of destiny or fate about them. So there's a couple in this book. One is the story of a little dog named Chloe Bear who belonged to a little girl named Nicole um, when she was about nine or ten but had to be rehomed when the family's circumstances changed. And then many, many years later, once Nicole was grown up and married and had children of her own, she decided to adopt a senior dog. So she picked one that was called Chloe because it reminded her of this dog she'd loved and lost. Um, And it was only after she'd had her for a few days that she realized it was Chloe. It was her childhood dog come back to her. Um, And they were able to confirm that by scanning the microchip number. But I mean, a story like that, it's just... That shouldn't happen. How, how on earth should that happen? But yeah. those two were meant to be together. And as you know, woo woo as that might sound, I I believe it. Yeah. You know, in my very soul, I believe it. Yeah. No, I I, I have a personal experience that is is very similar to that in in many ways. Um, one thing we Ooh. did notice during COVID uh, and and the impact it had was that uh, all the, uh, the instead of what I thought might happen is that people would uh, be cooped up in a house in lockdown or in you know uh, restricted situations and and become tired of their animals and 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 sort of farm them off. The opposite happened. All the, all the pet shelters and all the pet uh, places that you went to, um, people were, were taking pets into their homes. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole pandemic situation has had a few unexpected 
silver linings. And one of those has been really reiterating for us the value and the importance of connection and not just human to human connection, but the the connection that we can have with our animals as well. So yeah, there has certainly been a rush on adoptions with everybody working from home and, and just being at home more, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And you know, adult and senior dogs have been getting adopted in higher numbers, which is absolutely wonderful. You know, my only concern is that once the vaccine starts rolling out and more people return to working in offices or outside yeah. of the home, we might then see a counterpoint to that, which which could potentially be a rush of animals being surrendered once again. So, you know, I just hope that the people who've taken animals into their lives during this year have realized how valuable and wonderful they are and have bonded with them to the extent that they would never consider giving them up. Yeah, no, I, I certainly hope so too. And the health benefits of a dog, of having a dog, just in terms of, a, you know, you talk about you being a runner and you're like going for a run with a dog, but just just having that companionship sometimes is is, is good, for your, good for your soul and good for your heart and, and good for your health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been all kinds of studies done that have shown um, having a pet dog can reduce your blood pressure, it can reduce stress, it can help to alleviate feelings of loneliness, of, of anxiety and depression. And, but it's not even just the health aspects that are wonderful about old dogs. Um, you know, the practicalities of having an old dog can be wonderful as well um, because I think so many people think of them as, you know, oh, they're going to be incontinent or they're going to be lazy and no fun and I can't run with them and they won't be playful and their vet bills will be expensive. And, you know, that can be the case. But also they're going to be a lot more settled than a much younger dog. You know, they're not going to need a load of exercise. They're not going to be, you know, peeing in the house and chewing up your shoes and all of the things that puppies tend to do. So they can be a wonderful choice in that regard as well. Yeah. Uh, The way we've treated the elderly people in our society is hopefully changing and uh, hopefully uh, uh, reading stories like uh, the ones you've got in this book will help hopefully um, make people think more about longevity of their pets as well. I hope so. Um, And, you know, I absolutely agree that um, the way we tend to treat old animals is very reflective of the way we as a society view aging and old things. Um, And one thing that I would say and that I really hope this book might have some small um, impact on is, you know, so many elderly people are forced to give up their dogs when they go into aged care facilities. And that is just such a tragedy, not just for the old person, but for the old dog, of course. So I just really hope that, you know, as our aging population increase, you know, continues to age, that there can be a change in, in those rules and regulations so that people can keep their pets with them even when they go into aged care because it's just so important and that relationship is so beneficial. Yeah, and for some people that that's all they have. Exactly. It can be their sole reason for getting out of bed in the morning, their only companion, you know, and even in terms of things like social capital. So if you've got a dog that you have to walk, you're much more likely to chat to people in yeah. the street or get to know your neighbours. So it can actually be a wonderful gateway to building those really important relationships in the wider community. And to look at it from the dog's point of view, that that person is the only thing in their life that they really care about. That's true, and that's true for dogs at any age. Yeah. But, you know, particularly for senior dogs, they give us their entire lives and so much of their time is spent just waiting for us to come home or waiting for us to give them some attention. And so, you know, to, to me, to give up a dog in its senior years after they've shown that much loyalty and love, it's just unforgivable. I mean, doting on a dog, 
in its in its twilight years is the very least we should be doing, I yeah. think. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a lovely book. It's a delightful read. It's, uh, you know, hopefully and it, it, it strikes a few chords with people as well as not just being something that you pick up and read and enjoy but something that uh, you also take a, a few little uh, bits and pieces away uh, to, to change things about the way we treat uh, old dogs. Thanks, Laura, so much for your time. A lovely book. Really enjoyed it and uh, recommend it to people very highly. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kevin. Laura Greaves, a lovely bunch of stories about uh, man's best friend, the dogs, uh, and uh, you can't beat some of those the great uh, the great stories in there. Sure, you'll love reading that book, and uh, my thanks to Laura for her time. Let's get to the world of footy, though. So we go from a uh, self-confessed crazy dog lady to a self-confessed mad Tigers supporter, and there's no other type of uh, Richmond supporter than a mad one. Conrad Marshall is an award-winning uh, journalist and writer uh, who uh, you may see a lot of his work in the in the Good Weekend Guide. Uh, a really, really quality writer. Gone to the this Richmond Premiership, which was different for so many reasons, with a different kind of uh, set of circumstances. So he went about it in a totally different way. Let's find out what it's all about. Your third book on the thirteenth Richmond Premiership. Uh, the title came pretty easy, I guess. It did, yeah. It was a, um, a post by uh, Brendan Gale shortly after the grand final, the hard way. That was his that was his tweet, and it turned out there was actually a bit of backstory behind that. In the the club had obviously endured a, a tough run uh, throughout the year with some on field and off field uh, things going wrong, but then beyond that, there was this sort of theme after they lost to Brisbane in the qualifying final that they would have to go a different way, a slightly harder way in order to um, deliver on the, the final day of the season and it certainly proved the case. You know, the um, preliminary final against Port Adelaide I think was one of those matches that people sort of forget in the wash up of the season but yeah. might really have been the epic kind of contest of the year. So, um yeah, it was certainly climbing another mountain, and you know Damien Hardwick loves his um, his mountaineering metaphors. <laughs> and I think yeah. the uh, the theme of the finals was um, was Mount Maru, uh, a particular peak called the Shark's Tooth, which a number of climbers have tried to ascend, and one particular group they were captured doing it on on film in a documentary, and they had to sort of go up and then go a different way and find another path as things sort of befell them. So. I've gotten a few snarky tweets here and there from Hawthorne supporters um, pointing out that the hard way is the title of a Harry Gordon book on the history of their club from about 30-odd years ago. But um, I'd wager that that wasn't the first time the hard way was the title of of a book and probably won't be the last. Yeah, you're probably right. It seemed appropriate for us and really the only title that it could be. Yeah. In the moments after, when, you, when you're sitting at home, as you were watching this grand final, and, uh, you know, totally, did we know this one was totally different circumstances to any that we've experienced before in our lifetimes. Uh, was, was the book already in your head? Was the thoughts of doing a book already in your head or had that not even entered your mind uh, up to that stage? No, I'd actually sort of said goodbye to the idea of a book by then. So I, I had certainly sounded out Richmond during the season and said, look, if they turn this thing around, it would make a stunning story. Uh, but of course, I'd forgotten that Amazon were embedded with six clubs yep. this year, one of them being Richmond, and we're filming this fly on the wall documentary, and which will be out in March. And I guess I sort of thought that if, if they've already got some people inside capturing everything with camera, 
there probably wasn't really a need for a book to sort of chronicle the story. So then the day after the grand final, I got in touch with my publisher, or my editor rather, Jeff Slattery, who has put out these picture books in the past. And I said, well, if you're going to do one of those A4 picture books that um, people want to sort of sit on their coffee table, perhaps I could write an expansive sort of essay on the season to go in the centre of that or weave throughout it. Um, And very quickly sort of turned around and said, well, how about we do a sort of a smaller book, a kind of a reflection on the season? And Richmond agreed. Their coaching staff and playing staff were pretty much off limits. They they have uh, sort of protected space in their commercial bargaining agreement that says there there are periods when they can't just can't be contacted. So the book would have to be done largely without them. So I just spent the next week interviewing madly, sort of driving to Brendan Gale's house in Brighton and sitting down for two hours in his study talking about every facet of the season. Uh, doing the same um, in Richmond, Peggy O'Neill, and then getting on the phone or on Zoom chats with people like Tim Livingston and Blair Hartley, the sort of the, the twin pillar GMs of the, the football department, Shane McCurry, the culture and leadership expert, Emma Murray, the, the mindfulness coach, and, and on and on, just a bunch of off-field leaders who would be able to relay what the season was like. And I just sort of broke the season up thematically into sort of the the pre-season, you know, pre-COVID. Everything still has a sense of normality. This is a club that's striving for back-to-back. What does that look like? Then we go into uh, the COVID-interrupted season and the long sort of lockdown and shutdown. We translate into hub life would be the next one. And then there had to be a chapter on sort of the on- and off-field travails that have sort of um, come the club's way. some of them self-inflicted and some of them largely imaginary or a beat-up. Then a, a chapter on the finals themselves and, and an ultimate chapter on the grand final. And once you break it up into themes like that and you just you know the questions that you have to ask of each individual, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it was at least chronological and easy to sort of assemble into a story. I really like it and I really like the fact that there are no players and coaches interviewed in it because we always hear that thing about the team behind the team but you very rarely see anyone apart from, you know, maybe a couple of the the assistant coaches and and that you don't really see the Livingstons, McCurry's, uh, you know, uh, the Murray's, the Burgess, the Hartley's, the people you you just spoke about who are the team behind the team. They're the people who put this together and if ever there was a season where their role – was so integral to what happened on the field, this was it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned Peter Burge. I'd sort of left him off my list, but the high-performance manager at the club, I mean, in a season that stretched as long as it did, but also had long breaks and then also had these really highly congested areas of fixturing where teams were playing sort of four games in 14, 15 days or something ridiculous like that. The, The person managing the physical output and, and rest of the players would be integral. You know, clubs have injuries in that sort of that fixturing landscape and they become a really serious thing that you have to delicately manage. And he did, did this sort of so well, uh, not to mention just kind of keeping their spirits up throughout parts of this season. I think he, t- he talked really well about how when they went on that first lockdown and were sent away from the clubs that, Richmond didn't push their players. They didn't expect them to come back um, and and rendezvous with a a compulsory weekly meeting. They didn't have hardcore sort of set physical programs that they had to 
fulfill. There were things they needed to do, but most of them were fairly self-motivated professional athletes. So yeah. Richmond just sort of were gently, gently. And in the end, I think that allowed their players to sort of have a rest and sort of recharge rather than staying sort of stressed and and in some heightened state throughout that. So guys like Peter Birch were, were super important. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I think that was good about, um, as you say, not having players and coaches or not having that fly-on-the-wall access or approach to the book is that you, you're getting real reflections about things later on. So people have had, even if it's just a few days, to sort of digest what's happened in the season and talk about it, which is a very different thing than the previous two Richmond books that I've written where I'm just capturing what people are saying in the moment. And in the moment, people don't like to, you know, say, uh, you know, this has worked really well, we're, we're doing this really well because they don't want to be seem to be bragging if things don't, um, don't come off. So talking to people after a flag uh, about what it was like throughout, I think you sort of actually got a quite honest appraisal, which was nice too. Yeah. So different yeah, no, very, very different indeed. The thing that struck me, kind of reading it, also is the the amount of uh, it's like it's like a soap opera in terms of the amount of twists and turns and different storylines that have uh, kind of injected into the into the playing group by by Dimmer and by Tony Greenberg, who's another one who who obviously has a has a big uh, footprint across some of the stories that are told to the players and presented to the players. But just the amount of diversity you go from using bloody dancing in the dark by Bruce Springsteen to using, you know, a Finnish word that means resilience basically, or, or a Finnish word that actually doesn't have a proper English definition, but kind of everyone says it means resilience, to, you know, as you mentioned, uh, talking about uh, climbing mountains and stuff. Oh, it's it's crazy, and I, I was amazed by that when Dimmer started doing it, which was in 2017, the sort of the big year of the transformation. He kind of had a story for, for every single round, and I sort of wondered whether he was ever going to run out of them. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah but, exactly. But um, I think they're able to just sort of scour the globe, aren't they? And, the, and so you're right, like one week the, the story of the, the round will be the rumble in the jungle, and then the next, it'll be an AFC Championship win by the New York Jets over the over the New England Patriots or something like that. Um, but and then the grand final becomes the, the and the grand final becomes the New England Patriots. Who you'd used earlier as a example the other way with the with the do your job <laughs> theme. It's a, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Had you ever heard of Willie Pep before? Because I hadn't until I read this book. No, I never had. But um, <laughs> Tony Greenberg is good at digging uh, those out because he's a he's a um, very big boxing fan. Yep. So that's why you'll see a lot of them littered throughout. And it's funny, like you mentioned um, New England Patriots being used as a losing example in one round and then a winning example in another. I think he's done the same with Muhammad Ali. Like Muhammad Ali yeah. was the inspiration for a winning preliminary final last year, I reckon, and then this year. It was another Ali fight, except Joe Frazier was the guy that they wanted to highlight because he won. So, um, but but it's great that they're able to sort of work together and synthesise their story so that it's it's provided a lot of the time by Tony and delivered by Dimmer. Yeah. But then there's this whole sort of video team that work with them as well and splice together kind of footage and stories and have this great pump up music set to it. And there'll often be footage of the Richmond players, you know interspliced with, say, Ali punching or Tom Brady throwing touchdowns. And they work as um, a really great unit in that football department. It's, um, and I think it's pretty unique, actually. I, don't, I haven't heard of coaches using that 
sort of method on a weekly basis the way Dimmer does. They sort mm-hmm. of tend to save it for special occasions or grand finals or something. He he does it every week. Conrad, the other thing that's really interesting for me, and and, and as a, a football fan, and you are too, when you see players enjoying the game and having fun, and obviously enjoying each other, there's a different uh, there's a different thing about them. There's a, a whole different way that they go about playing footy when that when you can see that they're having fun. Richmond have always embodied that fun, and, and when you read this book and and see things like the cool runnings, uh, you know, little thing they did before the prelim final, uh, all that sort of stuff adds that little zing of sense of humour and sense of fun, and that this is a game, even though it's a business, it's a game. Yeah, and I reckon that might have been one of the very first messages at the beginning of 2017, like round one going out against Carlton. It was like talking about playing football for... You know, not for your family, not for the accolades, um, not for the professional athlete that you're supposed to be, but for the little boy who fell in love with the game. And they've just instituted that across club for the last few years now. I mean, one of their one of their watchwords is sort of strength, and another one is like fight or raise the fight. But one of them is like celebration. Yeah. Um, that that's a really important thing to this club and. I reckon when they brought Tom Lynch into the side, in fact, uh, it might have been Jack Revolt that got him over the line, persuading him to join the club by saying, look, I can't guarantee that you're going to win flags here. I can't guarantee that you're going to win Coleman medals, but I can guarantee you that when you come into work every day here, you're going to have a lot of fun. And that's something that that group really, really values. And it does seem to translate on on field into this sort of connected, um, chaotic uh, game style. You know, we focus a lot on Richmond's pressure, but I think what they bring more so is this this sense of abandon. You know, when they when they run forward in waves and you just don't know what's going to happen, they they look like they're having fun. Yeah, um, and the Richmond fans certainly you know, certainly do too. Yeah. Everyone talked about uh, during this season, particularly, that there will be an asterisk on, the, on on this season next to the Premiership winner's name. This book kind of tells you that, yes, there probably will be because there'll be, you know, terms and conditions apply, 17-game season, all that sort of stuff will be detailed. But there's no denying that this Premiership was as hard fought and as hard to win as any other Premiership that's ever been fought for. I think so. And, and Tiger fans certainly have already adopted that mantra of, you know, it doesn't have... It doesn't have an asterisk. It has an exclamation mark. Yep. Um, it's it's like the the toughest season there was. That sort of thing. Um, I do think it probably uh, it was a season that favoured mature teams, um, and certainly that was kind of forecast early in the year. There were a lot of experts, people like Jake Nile at um, at the Age, um, my colleague. He sort of foreshadowed the idea that these teams that have um, lists built on established veterans um, would fare better in a season that was going to be up and down and stop and start and staggered and it seemed to prove that way. I mean, Geelong are the oldest list in the in the competition by far, um, made it to the grand final and, and I think a lot of the other finalists were fairly mature sides as well. So yeah, it was an interesting year. I mean, most of the people that I spoke to at Richmond valued it as possibly the, the best premiership that the clubs won. That was certainly the view of Tony Greenberg and he's been around and watching um, the Tigers much longer than I have. You know, he, he experienced all of those flags in the, the 60s and 70s. So for someone with that kind of gaze or perspective on the Richmond Footy Club to come out and say that this is the flag of all flags suggests to me that, that yeah, the exclamation point, it's, um, 
is largely rubbish, at least to original yeah. supporters. As a fan, uh, did you did you think they'd gone off the run? I mean, they started the season really poorly on the on the ground, but then off the ground there was a whole lot of stuff going on throughout the year as well that you know you've detailed in that we're well, not detailed in the book, but you've mentioned in the book. Did you think they'd kind of lost the plot there at any stage, and that oh, no, this isn't going to happen? We're just we, we we're not adapting to hub life very well, and uh, it's just not going to be our year. I think. I was I was a bit worried that they were rattled in the early round. So when we were still locked down or still coming into the club, but um, but remaining distant from one another, uh, and results were sort of shaky on the field. There were some really uncharacteristic losses. You know, lost to St Kilda, um, built on the back of sort of ill discipline from really senior players. So not the younger ones that that happened a bit later in the year, but bad giveaway free kicks and 50-metre penalties for um, for slings and things by guys like Nick Bloston and Dylan Grimes, things that you just don't see. Um, and then a loss to Hawthorne, again, just in the manner of the capitulation. They were kind of uh, beaten and bullied and, again, ill-disciplined. And you just started to wonder whether all of those um, restrictions that were being applied to, to all clubs um, was having a, a more profound sort of impact on the Richmond system. Yeah. And then later on, you find out post-grand post final that Damien Hardwick was really struggling with um, adapting to those conditions. You know, he wasn't um, a strong enough sort of believer in the pandemic, tearing down COVID-safe posters and famously sort of saying, you know, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing zombies marching down the street. Yeah. I reckon all of that has got to sort of filter through and perhaps they were you know, not not connected and, and not playing well. But I think once they got up into the hub, even though there were lots of little things that sort of pockmarked the season in a way, I reckon they were really connected from there on in. And a lot of the things that were highlighted as Richmond arrogance, as, you know, Richmond hubris, I think they were largely imagined. Um, you know, Tom Lynch blashing out at players on the field, you know. So he gives a guy a little punch in the guts back after he's gotten punched in the guts all night by the same player. You know, suddenly he's a serial killer. Or yeah. he's pushed with it in, in the back of the head. And it just felt like after a little handful of those things happened, every single thing that Richmond did would just receive this um, inordinate amount of scrutiny and become further evidence to prop up this narrative that Richmond are arrogant and suffering from hubris and collapsing under the weight of their own egos. And, yeah, I just I don't really think that was true. And they were certainly aware of it in Outreachment. And I write about this in the book, how they, they're like, this is what the public are saying about us, okay? This is what they think. We know that's not true, so what are we going to do about it? And what they wanted to do was dial up all of the things that make them or have made them successful and connected and so they just worked really hard, I believe, inside the hub on getting around one another, supporting one another, staying positive and you know, investing in all of the things that make them great, whether it's mindfulness or, you know, excellent sort of tactical preparation. Uh, and we certainly sort of started to see them hit the right gears towards the end of the season. It's a fascinating insight into uh, into the hub life and, you know, things like, uh, what was it, the Gherkin tent or whatever it was called? And the, <laughs> the Gherkin Lounge. The Gherkin Lounge, that's right. Uh, that and the fight club and the card games that they had going on, the Monopoly card games and all those sorts of things. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful little insight into, into, you know, how they made it tick and how they made it work for them. 
and particularly from someone who sat in Melbourne uh, during that whole during, during the whole season, we've sat in Melbourne, locked up in our houses virtually watching the the footy. And as you quite rightly point out, for so many people, football was what got a lot of uh, Victorians uh, and particularly Melbournians through the the six month period. Uh, so to have that footy and to be able to watch it, and now to be able to pick this book up and get a little insight into how it kind of ticked in internally for uh, for for a club and a, a, the club that finished up winning the flag is a really interesting read. Yeah, thanks very much. No, no, I think really um, it's a lot of fun to be able to do these things. I certainly feel really privileged that um, the Richmond Footy Club will trust in me to kind of tell their stories. And you know, as a Tigers fan, I mean, it's just a ridiculous sort of um, dream, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Writer gets to about 40, you know, has has dream job, and then on top of that gets to suddenly embed with the club he loves as they win a drought-breaking flag and then two more. Like, it's it's ridiculous, and I, I don't take it for granted for one second. And I'm just thrilled that, um, I guess, that Richmond supporters get to read about this stuff too because I don't, you know, there are very few clubs that have had these flag experiences kind of chronicled in yeah. that time capsule sort of way. Like, I, I think they're really lucky in this Amazon documentaries that's coming out just adds to that again like it's almost like there's no part of this um richmond era of success the new um good old days that that hasn't been uh charted in some way so there are they're a spoiler bunch right now the old um tiger army is uh, is winning premierships the new normal is it for richmond <laughs> well, uh, I'd love to say it is, but as they stay down at Tigerland, we remain humble and hungry, oh, and that's yeah. the only way we'll get the job done. Yeah, you've already got the title for the fourth book uh, in the workshop, I know. <laughs> Don't start with me. <laughs> Conrad, mate, it really is a good read. I really have thoroughly enjoyed reading it, uh, and uh, and well done uh, again on another terrific piece of work. You're one of the great writers of footy uh, running around at the moment, and uh, I, I, I don't hope you've got a fourth book in you for next year. I'm, I'm hoping that that may change and it might be a red, white and blue one that we might be reading about, but who knows. So, but, no, well done again on a terrific book. Thanks very much, Kevin. My pleasure. Yes, let's hope there's not a book in store for uh, Conrad uh, for the coming football season for all those non-Richmond supporters. But for the Richmond supporters, gee whiz, you never know, do you? My thanks to Conrad for his time. My thanks to Laura Greaves. And my thanks once again also, of course, to our terrific partners in this podcast, Authorised. That is CSCG. And if they can help you out uh, in the finance world, they're always happy to have a chat to you. They're available on 03 8333 03-9974-8333. Whether it's your accounting or your taxation situation you want to talk about, uh, they can uh, help you reduce your tax exposure. They can offer you the right advice uh, to make a significant difference to your bottom line and a significant difference to your business. They understand what it's all about. Uh, They speak in very simple terms to you. They don't uh, try and uh, highfalutin you. They'll uh, they'll tell you exactly how it is. They'll talk straight to you. They're honest people and uh, they want uh, you to do well and they do well in the process. So uh, give them a buzz or jump on their website, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, hope you've enjoyed this edition of Authorised, where writers speak. More coming soon.